Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Gentile, specifically Greek believers, and all of the cultural differences that they were wrestling with, and Paul knowing that much of the established world, the the pinnacle of the world at that time wasn't the United States, it wasn't China, it wasn't Russia. The superpower, if you like, was Rome. And no doubt Paul felt very passionate that if he could bring a strong theological, meaty uh, kind of uh, context to, in his letter to the church at Rome, that that would hopefully have impact and spread out to the entire world. And if he could touch Rome, he could potentially touch the whole world. And so I won't lie to you, the book of Romans is probably the most famous of all letters, books in the entire Bible. But it is also one of the most, if not the most, complicated books in the entire Bible. So uh, when Pastor Luke said, let's get into the book of Romans, I want want you to know it was a challenging task for us to get into Romans. For you, if you're new to the faith, if you're an Aussie like me, brought up on meat pies and peas, never attending church as a young person, never having parents pray over a meal and and never introduced to the Lord or faith. The book of Romans is absolutely jam-packed with theological deep truths that really uh, requires us to give our attention and our understanding. But when we grab, grasp the truths found in Romans, I want you to know they are life-changing truths in this book. So as we consider chapter 4, let us digress and consider what has already been going on in this theological discussion in in what Paul is saying to the the Roman church. Well, chapter 1, he begins the letter, doesn't he, with a greeting. He says, hello. He says, "Um, hi, uh, this is who I am. Uh, I'm so glad and I'm thankful for you. Uh, But very quickly, verse 16, he jumps right into the meat of what it is that he wants to say, the reason for him writing, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This word gospel is a Greek word. It means good news. It is good news. It is not good advice, but it's an announcement. It's good news. It must be proclaimed, this news. And then he goes on in verses 16 and 17, and he speaks of, about four words that become the meat of the message of the entirety of the book of Romans where he speaks about things like the power of God, about salvation, about righteousness and about faith. Certainly the first four chapters, that is the content of everything that he has to say and it's all found in those two verses. This gospel, this good news... But as we've heard previously, if you want to or if you're able to appreciate the good news, you must first hear, you must first understand the bad news. Often we don't want to hear the bad news, we simply want to hear the good news. Verse 18, chapter 1, Paul gets straight into the bad news. And in that he says that God is upset with wickedness. That people don't worship God as they should. That people 
worship creation rather than the creator. They worship idols. They don't honour God. They're not thankful to God. That we, as God's creation, the pinnacle of all he created, should see God's design in, uh, in, the, in the stars of the sky, in the vastness of the universe, and also in the intrinsic detail of DNA matter, that we should see the, the incredible uh, divine design, the creation of God, and this should cause all of our hearts to explode with gratitude and thankfulness to God. But instead of this happening, we don't do that. We twist God's goodness and God's great creation, and we worship ourselves. We're foolish. Paul then goes on to speak about specific sin. He details, doesn't he, sexual sin and many others. Verse 29 of chapter 1, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're God-haters, they're insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no love, no mercy. Lots of sin there, isn't there? At this point of the letter, no doubt about half of the church were feeling pressure, guilt, whilst the other half are feeling somewhat glad and perhaps a few amens from Wayne Purton were in the church. You think half the church is Jewish, the other half is Greek or Gentile. And those Jewish believers, as they are hearing these sins, they're thinking, About time we got a preacher who had a bit of courage. (laughs) About time we had a preacher that would just preach it as it is. Because they were, the the Jewish believers and this half, they were brought up with the Old Testament and knowing the Ten Commandments and all of the Torah, the five books of Moses, and they believed it. And when they heard about all of these various sins that no doubt the Greek people like me, who, who weren't grown, hadn't grown up in the church and surrounded by the right things to do, they, they're feeling quite oppressed and guilty, feeling somewhat ashamed. You know, cultural um, matters are, are quite challenging. I'll just get my water. I'm not trying to intimidate anyone coming in here. <laughs> when we lived in Zambia... Often we were exposed and, and without even our knowledge or understanding to, to, to cultural uh, detail that were offensive to people. For example, in Zambia when you speak to somebody, it is disrespectful to look at them. So often you would say to them, listen, when I'm speaking to you, would you look at me please? We would view it as being disrespectful if they don't look at you. But if they look at you, that's a sign of somehow usurping authority. So for them to not look at you was actually a sign of respect. Often when Natasha would come to church, this was what they would do. They would say, ah! And there was ambient English. They would say, ah, mama, you are so fat. Ah, ma." Look, you're so fat. Now, to us, that's offensive. <laughs> to them, 
Fatness is a sign of prosperity and blessing. The fatter you are, the more wealthy you are. So if you'd been away for a week or two and you turn up, even if you hadn't put on weight, it was a compliment. If they said, ah, you've been away for a week, look at you now, you're so fat. (laughs) Different culture. Um, Another another one was uh, when you would have people over for dinner, you would leave food on your plate. So you would, you would give back a plate full of food. Now, in our culture, someone invites you to dinner and you don't eat the meal and you say, thanks for that, that was delicious. You're thinking, well, it couldn't have been because you've left it on the plate. But for them, by leaving it behind, it's a sign of satisfaction. I am so content and full due to the food that I've partaken. I'm content. There's your food back. Shorts were quite offensive in Zambia. When we were involved in construction of, of our church building, I wore a pair of shirts, uh, sh- sh- shirts, shorts. These were Aussie shorts, you know, they, they're a little bit shorter than the normal. And I remember the first day I got out on the, on the job site with all of the men of the church and the ladies were preparing meals. The ladies didn't know where to look when they saw me. You know, the, the, you're the, the preacher, the pastor, and you're wearing these shorts and I've got the palest of legs. It must be my Irish slash, you know, Scottish background. And they, they didn't know the, the, the shorts were offensive. Here's Paul preaching to the church in Rome. Greeks, Gentiles, Jews, and he's naming these sins and no doubt the Greeks are feeling quite uncomfortable. Paul, knowing that divide, knowing that that's happening, he launches into chapter 2 and he says, You therefore, verse 1, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at what point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And he swings it around knowing what's perhaps happening in the life of that that church. And he says, you know what? We are so good at judging everyone else. We are so good at seeing the sin in everyone else that we often don't see it in ourselves. We're all judges. Kids learn to be judges from a little age, young age. You don't believe me? Give a child a bubble bill. Who remembers the bubble bill? That is the coolest, creamiest ice cream in the face of a cowboy <laughs> with a black back chocolate with a big red bubblegum nose. How I remember the bubble bill? Clearly one of my favourites. You give a child a bubble bill and then go and say to his brother in the other side of the room, you get, get the other child and say, that is your bubble bill. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? You will have an absolute war on your hands. That child will run, grab that bubble bill and say, that's mine. What's the other child going to do? They will know that they have been sinned against. They will run to the parent and say, this is an injustice. (laughs) 
Now that one, they won't say it like that. It sounds very English and proper. I think an injustice has been done against me, Mama. No, 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 no. They, they will scream. They will be angry. Now to flip it on its edge or head, if you like, then go and take or get a bubble bill and give it to his little sister and say, can you believe it? The same one that cried about the injustice, say, that's your bubble bill there. <laughs> they will run. One minute, uh, it'll change. They'll go from angry, wanting justice, to simply snatching that out of their hand. Mine. <laughs> so easy to see injustice in others. But yet we ourselves can do the same. What about us as husbands? Ladies, please turn off just for 30 seconds. Speaking to the men. Don't you think that your wife can be a little bit of a nag? (laughs) You work all day. Come home. You want a kiss. Did she give you a kiss? Maybe a little peck. Oh, I want a little bit of romance. No. Kiss. And then at night, you've been working hard all day. All you want to do is watch a game of football, mate. Peace and quiet. It only goes for three hours. <laughs> Nagging. Selfish, man. I can tell by your chuckling, men, you agree. Uh, men, turn off. I want to speak to the ladies. Ladies. Really. He is so selfish. You make breakfast for the kids. Lunch for the kids. Clean the house. Clean the toilet. He comes home and just wants to slob around the house. You wash his clothes. You make him dinner. And then he has the gall to say to you late at night after you've done that and served and slaved after him all day, hey, baby, how am I kiss? What a selfish person. You see what I'm saying? So easy for us to look at the other person and say, look how sinful, how selfish. We judge everyone else and see it so clearly. But not often in ourselves. Easy, Paul says to the Jewish people who were probably feeling quite confident. Well, then we move to chapter 3. We move quickly. Chapter 3 After challenging them throughout chapter 2, he launches and he says there in verse 1, what advantage then does the Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? And then he says to objectify, to challenge his own thing, he says God is always good, God is faithful. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles or the word of God. The Jews have been blessed by God, but nevertheless, Sin is sin, Jew or Gentile, God will judge all the same. 
verse 10, he says, as you read there, verse 10 right through to verse 18, quotes from the Old Testament where he simply says, all of us are in the same boat, all have sinned, none are righteous, no, not one. Now, this doesn't mean that we never do good things. People do do good things. It's not saying that we are all as bad as what we could be. But the theme is this. We are all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We are hardwired for sin. The world doesn't look like it should. We see breakdown everywhere. My kids, whilst we're in this paradise of Hawaii, spoke to me night after night. They said, Dad, we haven't seen... Uh, like violence and trouble like we saw in the streets of Honolulu. We saw two drug deals take place right before our eyes. We saw uh, physical violence between men and women in the street. So in this place of paradise, you're still exposed to a world that is clearly imperfect. We don't have to look to Honolulu. We can look at our own family. All of our families are a little bit dysfunctional. All of us have that uncle. <laughs> all of us, and it's not just in our families, it's also in the church. There's always someone in the church that has a propensity to hurt other people. We don't have to look to the family, the church. We can look at our own hearts. Can you look at yourself from time to time and say, man, I'm 45 years of age and I'm still struggling with some of those things that I struggled with when I was 20 or when I was a teenager? I thought by now I would be way over that and stronger and better than that. Why am I still wrestling from time to time with some of these issues that are deep down within inside of me? Why do they come back? Often this is why we look for applause or praise from people, from a pastor, from a partner, from our wife, from our job, from a new job, why we make a lot of money. It's not just to eat, but by earning big bucks or driving a nice car, it somehow justifies us. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel worthy. It makes us feel like... We belong. We deserve. I'm okay. We buy books on self-esteem. I'm okay. You're okay. We try really hard to be cool. Or if it's too hard to be cool, let's be really uncool because that's kind of cool. It's all a justification of ourselves. And in verse 20, he says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. And verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem Paul deals with at the end of chapter 3 is that if we are all messed up, then how can anyone be saved? Often in our world today, we hear an opposite question. We hear this, don't we, in the world? If God is so loving, then why won't everyone be saved? The Bible doesn't ask that question. The Bible says, the Bible's logic is if we are all so messed up and sinful, how can a holy, righteous God accept any of us? 
People ask the question, why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible never asks that. The Bible asks, why do good things happen to bad people at all? You know, if you saw a judge who had a man before him who had murdered a child, that man admits to murdering the child, and then you heard the judge say, it's okay. It's no biggie. I love everyone. Would that be a judge that you would love or respect? No. You would be outraged. Therefore, the question is asked as we move into chapter 4, how can God justify the ungodly? Verse 24, we're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So let's come up to speed and close. You see, the problem is sin. The answer is Jesus. And the means to that answer he gives us in chapter 4 by giving us the primary, the pinnacle of examples, the the patriarch of old, Abraham, the answer, problem sin, answer is Jesus, how do we become justified? By faith. This faith was displayed in the life of Abraham. I won't take the time, but Paul breaks down most of chapter 4 And he says to the church in Rome, particularly the Jewish believers that are perhaps feeling quite self-righteous and quite proud, what saved Abraham is the same thing that will save all of us, and that is his faith in God. They were trusting Abraham and his heritage, their Jewish past. They were trusting in circumcision a sign of their their dedication. They were trusting in the law. He said, no, what justified Abraham is that he believed God and God counted it to him as righteous. God, in essence, came to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Abraham, I promise you Three things. Abram at the time. I promise you a land. I promise you a child. And I promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. And Abraham simply said, this is in Genesis 15. Yes, God, you can do that. Before circumcision, Before the law, God said, I will do this. And Abraham said, yes. The same faith that saved Abraham will save you and I. When Abraham believed, the Bible, what the word 
There is an accounting term. It was counted. Uh, NIV says credited to him as righteous. It's very important, church. Because this word credited isn't that God is saying, Abraham, you've done a lot of bad stuff, but there's one thing you've done really well. You believe. And that belief actually is more prominent than your bad. Therefore, you make it. Abraham still struggled. It was simply credited to him by God. The theological term we use is it was imputed to him. In other words, Abraham didn't suddenly become a righteous person when he believed. But through faith, God credited him as righteous. Hallelujah. Now, we don't necessarily have, if you're not Jewish, Abraham is your forefather. We can't lean on Abraham saying, because he's our grandfather, I'm going to make it. But we can put our faith in people. We can put our faith in pastors rather than in God. And so if a pastor, a leader, a deacon, an elder, or somebody that is in the church ever disappoints you, your faith is rattled. Can I tell you, put your faith in Jesus, not in people. Not Abraham, not Ray Gunton, not Pastor Luke, not anyone. Put it in Jesus. They trusted in circumcision for us. We don't perhaps trust in circumcision, but we trust in tithing. We trust in, I'm faithful to church, or we trust in, I'm a part of an MCG. Can I tell you? None of those things make you righteous before God. Only Jesus. Put your faith, put your trust in him. Even though we're not Jews, the principles that he spoke in chapter 4, the breakdown, the arguments that Paul brings again and again really uh, flow through to, to, to all of us today. But verse 23, chapter 4, let's wrap it up. Just give me five preaching minutes. It says there, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for us, for, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child when they were well past the age of childbearing. 75 was the start and he They conceived a child when Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90. That is earthly impossible. Blue pill or no pill, (laughs) they are not having a child. (laughs) Right? But guess what? Get, Get this. Abraham believed God. That's it. He didn't look at his biological struggles and say, oh yeah, I've still got another one in me. No. 
He said, I understand that this is impossible, how I could be blessing the nations of the earth through my offspring, that is, that is impossible. But if God said it, I believe it. If God said it, Lord, let it be done. Abraham believed God who raises the dead. Verse 20. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Church, this is the essential truth that many of us can sometimes miss. That we think through our good deeds, through our service, that we can somehow be justified or pleasing to God. Can I tell you, there is no justification in Ray Gunton. I could never out weigh the scales with my good works compared to my bad deeds. It is only through Jesus. Verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification brings us to this point, the resurrection, raised to life for our justification. Why is the resurrection good news? The resurrection church, as I wrap it all up, is simply God's loud declaration that justice has been satisfied and we have been justified. The resurrection speaks. That's why it says in verse 4, that through the spirit of holiness who appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection speaks. It declares Jesus is Lord. This man, the only man who rose from the dead, is clearly the Son of God. Verse 25, that's why it says... He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Hallelujah. Max Licardo speaks of, uh, of six brothers and five of them went out and, and uh, made slingshots and began to shoot houses and, and cars and everything they could find and light fires in their neighbourhood. The boys, as cars were getting pinged with little pebbles, doesn't sound like anyone you know, they ran. They weren't good crooks. They didn't run to someone else's house. They ran to their own house. And the only other boy who was always good, he studied the atlas every night and learned how to use his scientific calculator. When the five boys came home and they were all in trouble, they had done a lot of bad things, the little boy that stayed in his room, he came out and he said to mum and dad, mum and dad, I will pay for the sins of my brothers, for their wrongdoing. I will pay whatever penalty that you would give to them. I want to bear it on me. For some reason, the parents agreed. That little boy, the good boy in the room, studying the calculator, playing guitar and flute, <laughs> piano, Good boy. Okay, your penalty is there'll be no breakfast, lunch or dinner. You will spend the rest of the day in your bedroom as a payment for your brother's sins. The other five boys, they're feeling bad but realise that their good boy brother had paid the price. They weren't confident. There's no assurance because what if the parents change their mind? We can't do that to him. Get him out. Put the other boys in. 
But finally, as the day went, lunch had gone by and the end of the evening had come, finally the door opens, the little good boy who's been penalised comes out and he's embraced by mum and dad. It's at that stage that the five others feel, ah, finally we can be confident that our sin has been paid for. We don't have to feel that maybe our parents will change their mind. The, the empty room indicates the satisfaction of parental justice. In the same way, the empty tomb signifies and signals the vindication, church, of Christ from the curse of the law and the declaration of free pardon for all of us who belong to Jesus through faith. Church, this is the point I'm making. And I'll try to make it quick before you say anything else. We are saved not by the removal of justice, but by the satisfaction of it. It's easy for us to think that salvation is where love conquers holiness. Well, God just loved us so much. He woke up one day and said, you know what? I just love them too much. I'm not going to worry about their sin. Just forget about it. I know you've messed up. I know you've made mistakes. Don't worry. I'm a good guy. It doesn't matter. That is not how justification works. It is not because God's mercy triumphed over justice. We are justified because in divine mercy, God sent his son to the cross to satisfy divine justice. And the resurrection declares that there is nothing else to pay. It was paid in full. Tatalestai. It is finished. Hallelujah. You don't have to live every day, wake up every day thinking, oh, God might change his mind tomorrow. No, God will not. He cannot change his mind. Your sin has been paid in full. You might be good people, but for me, I struggle from time to time, and this is good news for a bloke like me. Acts 2.24 God raised him from the dead, being free from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him, to hold him. It was impossible, church, for Jesus to remain dead. Is this because God is very powerful and God is very strong? Yes, he is, but no. The reason that death couldn't hold him is because it had no claim on him. The wages of sin is dead. So when sin is paid for, there is no obligation for those wages. Oh, how secure is our salvation? How justified are we that God didn't actually set aside the law in judging us? Our sin counted to Christ, therefore he deserved to die. Because his life and death are counted to us, we now deserve to live We're not forgiven because God's having a good day. God demands that the smallest sin be paid for. Every lustful thought, every jealous glance, every proud look. God demands justice. But praise God, justice has been met through Jesus. Put your faith in him. Jesus, the resurrection, is God's loud proclamation that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to reconcile you to God. 
Jesus is enough to pay for your sin. Jesus is enough to present us wholly before an almighty God. Jesus is enough to free us from the curse of the law. Jesus is enough for there to be now no condemnation. Hallelujah! I feel Pentecostal (laughs) in a Baptist church. Just an Aussie, meat pies and peas. What great news. I pray it gets your heart as it gets mine. Let's bow our heads today. Father, we live because you died. We have the assurance of hope because the grave could not hold you. It was impossible that you would remain dead. We worship you for all you have done or that you promised to do as our risen, conquering, crucified Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.